everyone. Welcome back to the Wisdom Collective. I'm here with Kyle Strobel. Kyle, how you doing? I'm doing well, man. How are you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah, we're just living, we we're just talking, we're living through COVID, trying to figure it out, you know? Yeah. <laughs> totally. It's, it's, it has been an interesting season and it, unfortunately it looks like it's going to continue for quite some time now. Yeah, yeah. So we're all adjusting to whether it's kids in homeschool, but also still doing our jobs from home. And there's a lot of new things. I, I think there'll be a lot of, I mean, there's obviously a number of negative things that have come out of this moment and uh, even some things that already existed that are now being illuminated to us. But I think a lot of us will figure out uh, working from home for the first time and maybe we like it or whatever the case might be, you know, it'll be totally. all over the map. Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. No, no, it's, it's, it's not a bad time if you had a startup in, in video conferencing <laughs> or something. <laughs> a lot yeah. of people doing well. <laughs> yeah, my Zoom stock is doing great. No, no. <laughs> <Right>, totally. <laughs> yeah, well, hey, I wanted to talk to you um, for a couple of reasons. Um, primarily, you've been doing a lot of writing on um, this concept and idea of spiritual formation um, mm -hmm. that has kind of had, uh, I would say, like a renaissance within the evangelical world, at least sure. in its interest in it. Um, yeah, but yeah. I also don't know if they know exactly what to do with it or what it even means. So. Um, you have some authority there because you've written on this a lot. Um, mm -hmm. So let's let's give you a bio though before we jump into this. What are you up to? Like, who are you? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tell people why you should be the guy talking about this, right? Yeah. Well, um, the a kind of the quick version, I suppose, is um, you know I I felt the call in the ministry a long when I was really young, particularly training pastors, which I had no interest in whatsoever. <laughs> when I felt that call, I was like, oh, that sounds like a bad idea. <laughs> And, uh, back. Yeah. yeah, I was like, I don't, I'm not interested in that. But it, it became really clear later. And, you know, my, my initial interest was scripture. I, I, I did an undergrad in Bible. I did an MA in New Testament. Um, I did an MA in philosophy as well. I was um, part of that was just I wanted to be able to think really critically about these things. And, and I, the plan was I'm going to be a New Testament PhD and professor. That was the idea. And, and I kind of realized that most of my questions academically were very closely attached to existential questions I had. Mm -hmm. What does growth look like? Um, what is sanctification? I actually was in conversation while I'm doing a PhD on um, on sanctification in the New Testament or something like that. And, and then I kind of realized that actually, historically, the questions I asked were done through theology. And that at some point, and, and I think the boogeyman here will be the Enlightenment. Once the Enlightenment hit, and what we now know of as the modern seminary was birthed, the problem was there was a bifurcation of all the different things Christians did in training, ministers usually, but also scholars. And it kind of separated out theology from spirituality from one another. And and so when I did my PhD, I purposely looked for someone right before that break. And I wanted someone where theology and spirituality were still one conversation, not two. And so I, I did my PhD on Jonathan Edwards. And, and so basically, you know, now I teach in, a, in an institute of spiritual formation. I, I'm a systematic theologian. So when I do academic publishing, that's what I do. But when I do write on the popular side, I'm usually writing spiritual formation and and you're right to say there it, it has had a renaissance, although many many ways the renaissance has been a confused one, I think, yes. um, yeah. or a partial one. So typically, there are books written more at the lay level, and it's people discovering things they had never heard about in their church. And so it's like, wow, look at this, like fasting, or you know, it's yeah. almost always spiritual disciplines. Yeah. And spiritual disciplines, which I think is an unfortunate term. Um, is is a minor part of what spiritual formation is. I mean, in short, all spiritual formation is, 
is is answering the question what does it mean to grow in holiness or what does it mean to grow in faith or what just what does growth in the christian life look like just that is what spiritual formation is and so in one sense there's no one that doesn't have a view of spiritual formation it's not like as a christian you can choose to care about it or not yeah there are different views right you're gonna have wesleyan views and reform views and broadly evangelical view you know there's a catholic view i mean everyone's gonna have a different angle into how you think about it um, but that's basically what it is. And so the initial kind of wave of folks, which were just recovering things that were lost, unfortunately gave the false impression that spiritual formation is, a, is one thing, like one view called spiritual formation, and that it was tied to kind of just doing spiritual practices in a distinctively contemplative vein or something like that. I think that's wrong in the sense that everyone has a view of spiritual formation. There's multiple veins of it. And I'm interested not in generating one as much as recovering an early evangelical one through folks like Edwards, through folks like Wesley, and kind of trying to get what was going on theologically for them. How does it differ from the Catholic counterparts? How does it, you know, those kinds of questions. So basically that's what I do. Um, uh, in an academic world, I mostly do stuff on Edwards. That's my kind of area of expertise, but also doctrine. Um, but then I'm very interested in questions uh, about things like contemplation, about things like prayer um, and various other topics. And so that's, that's basically um, what I do. I'm on the preaching team at my church. So I, I preach monthly. I'm in a church that does that. And my, right. I have two, two little ones that I'm with me, seven, nine now, actually. So not so little, <laughs> which has been interesting. I mean, I think in COVID, I've seen them shoot up a little bit. It's like, wow, what's happened? But <laughs> well, We've had like uh, pickup and drop-offs with our local congregations, you know, for different things, like summer things for like kiddos and different things like that. And it's a trip because honestly, between I mean, the last time we saw a lot of these kids, they truly were like smaller or talking less or not walking yet. Sure. It's like, what in the world is going on? <laughs> Dude, and uh, I mean, we're connected to our people, but some of them you just don't see because of the communities and where they're at. Sure. And, dude, it's, it's so strange. It is. It's weird. It is very, I've noticed the exact same thing. It is very weird. Um, yeah. And I even see with my own kids, like, wow, I, I could see a picture when we started COVID to now. It's like, you've grown, <laughs> you've changed, something's happened, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> This is good. So, I mean, that's a, well, it's a, it's an interesting bio, but it's a strong one. Um, I think, uh, well, it, it's good to hear all of that. I think in a joking way, the, I thought you were just like Lee Strobel's son. So I didn't know all the other stuff, man. I, <laughs> I had no idea you did your own things, you know, that's great. <laughs> that does catch people by surprise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, it's uh, well, and it's, it's a very interesting track you're taking. There's going to be, there'll be a number of like Eastern Orthodox folks that'll listen to this uh, show as well. And they'll be really interested, especially in that, that dichotomy you're talking about, that enlightenment slash post-enlightenment reality of this sort of disassociation between theology as almost like a, a hard science that we'd study separate from the rest of life and reality. Um, and, and, and trying to reintegrate that. How do we bring that back together or bring a more holistic vision of theology back into people's lives, right? Yeah. There's a lot in that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what the Eastern Orthodox particularly have been one of the strands that have always just refused to bifurcate the, yeah. these sorts of things. And um, there's unfortunately less, um, I mean, I've done a bit of actually dialogue with Eastern Orthodox on Edwards. There's actually some mention Edwards in, his, in, in Eastern Orthodoxy for various reasons. 
Um, and there's a surprising overlap actually with early evangelicalism and a lot of a lot of what's going on in Eastern Orthodox theology and practice. And so, yeah, there's there's all sorts of interesting kind of kind of dialogues there. So one of the classes I teach for our institute is the history of Christian spirituality. And so it's it's fascinating to see just how these different trajectories end up kind of kind of playing out and what drives them and how they differ and um, and sometimes they start very different and then they kind of reemerge as actually united in all sorts of interesting sorts of ways. So that's been a really fun. It's a hard class to teach because it's one semester. It's two thousand years of church history. <laughs> yeah, you got to be fast and maybe shallow on things that you shouldn't want to be shallow on. And yeah, totally. Um, and there's like no one in the world who could actually teach it, right? I mean, it's one of yeah. those classes that like, no one knows that. Like, no one has that breadth of kind of knowledge. But, yeah. um, but that makes it fun as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I have been in, in similar dialogues with uh, some of those folks, and there is. Uh, well, and, and this is interesting, too. I mean, different from you, I didn't grow up in the church at all. And so some things I don't have. Um, I mean, there's some things that w- are within, obviously, within like more of a, uh, I don't know exactly what you call your upbringing, but more of like an evangelical-ish kind of an upbringing. There's a lot of things that were great and should be retained, but there's also like some of the baggage or like the things that were missing, maybe like you're trying to reinvigorate or whatever the case might be. But I don't have either of those things really like I came in very fresh at 21 years old and so like there were things that they were like great and then there are also things that I wasn't having to like I don't know unhabit or unlearn you know that was the, the negative yeah. things right totally um I had my own habits that were definitely <laughs> different like a little bit more on the worldly side but anyway um yeah yeah it's interesting and and so I love what you're up to though you mentioned that so much of this spiritual formation uh renaissance and conversation it's an it has been maybe because it's had a popular level renaissance is what more what I was talking about. It has been so focused on this spiritual discipline slash practices, which should, we should see more of that in our churches than we do, but it's just not all of it there. It's, it's an existential question. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that is where the church is missing in, um, in so much of its articulation of like, what is the good life or what is like life in general? Like what is good? Like, what is good? Like why, why pray? Why fast? Why do these things? Like, not just because God said so, like, and not just because, oh, yeah, they have crossover with, um, you know, like, there's people that aren't even Christians that are saying fasting is a good practice. Like, totally. Yeah, this is great. Yeah. It's like, no, there's like deeper why to this. It's like something deep to being human. So let's try and, because you've been thinking about this a lot, maybe build out like a, a definition of spiritual formation. And if you think it's helpful, distinguish it from um, some of the Catholic and, and other practices that, that maybe carry some of the similar language. Um, but anyway, yeah, give us a yeah. good definition for what you, what you mean by spiritual formation. Well, spiritual formation, it, so there's, let me t- take it from two angles. So there's one that's more of like the academic discipline. So that would be the study of Christian growth and grace or something like that. Um, sp- spiritual formation as like in the life of the believer is just that growth and grace. And so the reason why you have different accounts is because you have different accounts of grace. Mm-hmm. A Catholic account of grace will look one way. Eastern Orthodox account of grace looks slightly different. Reformed looks slightly different. Wesleyan looks like, um, and actually what's interesting about evangelical accounts is that early evangelicalism, what's funny is you get this break eventually between, I, I think of, I like to think of key figures. So like what Edwards and Wesley, right? These two strands of kind of revivalism. So you get that era of this revivalistic impulse. Um, what's interesting is if you read Edwards and Wesley, and, and Wesley would reproduce Edward's own works. 
he would edit some stuff out. He's like, election, predestination. Well, it's kind of, you know, okay. we're just yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Snip that out, you know. Yeah. We'll, we'll just kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then on the ground, their spirituality was identical, actually. And so there's this interesting impulse of evangelical spirituality that's built on grace, that where grace is highly relational. Mm. And, and in many ways, actually, if, if you read someone like Thomas Aquinas, who obviously the Catholics are going to rest really heavily on, as they should, um, in many ways, the early evangelicals, because the Reformed are so Thomistic, the Reformed, and a lot of people don't realize how Thomistic the Reformed were, yeah. um, they're steeped in Thomas, and they were by and large Thomists. They're doing very similar sorts of things, although there, there's a break where you push more towards the relational vein. And so, um, I mean, for the for anyone that, that knows kind of Eastern Orthodox theology, or anyone that knows kind of the theological discussion, one of the ways to get into this would be through theosis. Yeah. And, and in the in the early church, there's two strands of theosis tradition. One strand emphasizes more the kind of obtaining of divine attributes. And that's precisely what the East now does through a development of Palamas, where you get this kind of a participation of the divine energy. So that's one way to do it. The West um, focused a little more on the relational side that you get through someone like Cyril and Athanasius. And the, the reformers always did this. So the, a reformed account of theosis is kind of sharing in the relations of the triune persons. And so when Jesus prays in John 17, 26, Father, um, love them with the love with which you loved me. And he's not saying just love them. He's saying internalize them in our right, love, right. right? And so that's what, that's how the West, particularly the, the Protestant West has always understood theosis, right? Um, that's from Calvin on, you get that link. So when, when, when you get in 2 Peter 1, 4, we are to be partakers of the divine nature. Nature there is read by the West in, as, as life partakers of the divine life, right? So now it's in kind of much more relational vein. Again, the Reformed West does it this way. Mm -hmm. Whereas the East, that, that takes on a much more metaphysical kind of kind of characterization. Um, I've actually argued, so I, I have an article on this in Edwards, where I actually argue Edwards takes those two different strands and, and unites them in a very kind of interesting sort of way. So there's some interesting kind of material there. And I feel but, like so the opportunity within evangelicalism in that, it, well, you, you're right, it became its own distinct movement at some point. Um, but it, Early on, it, it felt very, uh, at least my take on the history of it, it felt a little bit more ecumenical in some ways. Um, it, the opportunity, yeah. at least, was for it to be ecumenical, for sure. Um, and it was that, like you said, and that people mm -hmm. that were pretty diametrically opposed on methodology and even some high views of like particular theologies, like predestination, let's say, could essentially be on the ground the same person, you know, more or less, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, evangelicalism was always a big tent sort of thing. Yeah. The problem is, um, and I don't know the dates all that well, but in the 20th century, one of the things that happened is that fundamentalists just started calling themselves evangelicals. Mm -hmm. And we've never been able to lose that characterization. And so there's, there's, there's all these fundamentalists who, who aren't evangelicals who think they are. And because they self-identify that way, now you have this blurring the water. And now they're saying you're not evangelicals because you're big tent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's that's been an, a perennial problem, I think, for evangelicals. It's been devastating because the fundamentalism that seeped in was just so divisive. Um, yeah. and the vitriol that came with it. 
And so that, and that to this day, I mean, I think it's still a massive problem. And that's when you look at criticism, spiritual formation, they're never from evangelicals. Mm. And it's never accurate either. It's never from knowledge. It's never from people saying, um, you know, I get critiqued all the time, but I've, I'm never critiqued, literally never in the, in, on this issue, on things I've actually said. Interesting. What would the critiques be? Or like an example? Um, because I use the word spiritual disciplines, which ironically, literally one of this happened recently where someone posted a table of contents to a book I wrote called Form for the Glory of God, which is on Edward. So it's, it's not even my own kind of view. It's on Edward's view of spiritual formation. Yeah. They, they circled the chapter that said spiritual disciplines as means of grace. In the chapter, I argue, you know, spiritual disciplines is just bad language, theologically. There's all sorts of problems. We should actually use means of grace. I don't think I could sell that, so I changed to spiritual practices because I said, look, let's be a little pragmatic here. Yeah. So they didn't even bother reading the book. They said, he said the word spiritual disciplines. That's okay. New Age mysticism, which... <laughs> That leap is nuts. <laughs> it's like, what are you talking about? Like, reading your Bibles, that New Age mysticism? Yeah. Um, and so, therefore, I am this dangerous New Age mystic. And it's literally that crazy. I mean, it is this. Um, and, of course, you know, culturally, we're, we're in the moment where both right and left have gone nuts. And yeah. the right crazy is conspiracy theory crazy. And so, if anyone sounds different from me, it's because they're a part of a grand conspiracy to undermine the very fabric of rubber, you know, yeah, totally. blank. And so it's that kind of thing. Um, I mean, it's one of the reasons why somewhat subversively in embracing contemplation that um, John Coe and I edited in the introduction, I actually quote John MacArthur mm -hmm. because <laughs> there's, there's something kind of funny about because MacArthur's and his school are one of the people that will critique um, yeah. um, us and yet, I use one of the texts he says is the is um, a purely biblical account, um, which I don't even know what that means. But but purely biblical account yeah. of spiritual formation, or, or of sorry of of um, the Christian life, from someone that's you know was actually converted by a Jesuit text. He's a Puritan, <laughs> but he's converted by a Jesuit because the Puritans used to reproduce. Um, Catholic texts all the time. They would just change, especially the with the Jesuits. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Or imitation of Christ. They love. Yeah, that book. yeah. They just believe the last chapter on the sacraments, <laughs> and they'd be like, oh, "John Smith wrote this," <laughs> <laughs> and they loved it. They wouldn't be real all the time. Mm -hmm. um, but they. So this is Richard Baxter was converted by this Jesuit text, and then he he ends up accepting the kind of um, a distinction that's actually more Catholic than Protestant between the active life and the contemplative life. And he develops this whole thing. Well, MacArthur read, read all of that and seemed to have no problem with it because an old person said it. I, if I say the exact same thing, he calls me a new age mystic. And it's like, and so I'm like, fine, I'll use your texts if you want. Like, look, this is the text. And, and that's what's the irony. I mean, it's, it's not based on knowledge. It's not based on him actually of reading any of it. It's this fear-driven, this looks bad over there. We don't do this and don't need it. Therefore, it must be wrong. And it's yeah, a lot of divisive. baked in assumptions for sure. Well, and oh. like people that are watching the video, you do have a lot of like crystals and dream catchers around you right <laughs> now. But like, yeah, that's really a little bit of a tell. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. <laughs> no. Well, I do have a deep love of Harry Potter. That doesn't help me, I don't think, in certain circles. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> Big problems like 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. and that, well, that's another great example. Like, I remember reading that or hearing all the things about Harry Potter and I, was, I didn't know anything about it. And I was like, Oh, that sounds kind of sketchy. You know, I, I, yeah. Um, and then I actually read the books because I was a, 
I, my first teaching job was for freshmen teaching Christian worldview. And every illusion, like I was trying to be, you know, culturally savvy and stuff. And they had no idea what I was talking about. Yeah. And so I was like, what do you people read? Like, do you read? And they said it was the generation that their entire life had been lived with Harry Potter. Like hmm. they were the ones that read it when the first book came out. And then a year later, read this, and they were the same age. And yeah. And so I was like, if I'm going to be relevant, I better read these books. And I was like, these are more explicitly Christian than Narnia. Right. <laughs> Yeah. How do you people miss this? In like heavy-handed ways sometimes. It's like, yeah. It's like you 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 become evil and you become more snake-like. Hmm, I wonder where she got that. <laughs> where is that idea coming from? Right. <laughs> so yeah. she's quoting scripture. She did, I mean, yeah, it was, I couldn't believe it. I was astonished. But it was just like, it is that uniquely American, fundamentalist, fear-driven, like circle the wagons, everything's dangerous. We need, you know, and it's, What's so tragic is I know so many people that have come out of that world and they do not do well. I mean, they they yeah. either stay in, kind of turn inward, and it's very it becomes very kind of inbred, or they leave and they're so angry. Yes, yeah, that they just abandon Orthodox Christianity entirely, and it's um, yeah, it's it's a, such an unfortunate sort of thing. Yeah, because it can be, and this isn't only this, it can be so constrained and con- like caging almost that uh yeah the reactivity whether it goes either direction you're talking about is yeah. so strong it's it's yeah the movement out is almost always like reactive right it's not like reformative or um okay let's 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 distill some things that i could keep from behind it's like everything has to be reacted from totally yeah well because when you realize how deceptive it was because usually what's not going on is they're not kind of generously saying well we don't believe these things but let me tell you what they are just yeah. so you know what they are. Like, I mean, and this is why we don't buy it. It's it's always like these are evil. Don't even think about them. Don't look yeah. at them. You know, and it's that like that's certainly not what Paul was doing when Paul's quoting philosophy and when Paul's you know Paul's quoting magical text in Ephesians and, and Colossians. He actually quotes directly. Yeah, sure. From magical text, it only occurs in ancient magical text. Height, length, depth, and breadth. That is a technical magical term that he's yeah. saying. They just don't know what they're doing. That actually, when you know, the real length, height, that the breath is God, and it's like he—he's specifically engaging these things. He's not turning their eyes, turning his eyes away from them. And I think that's that fear. It, it just doesn't do justice, um, and yeah. it doesn't actually help engage the world well, unfortunately. Yeah, and it doesn't sound like your upbringing was as much um, book burning ish. But then, yeah, someone interacts with the Harry Potter example. They interact with it as like now a full-grown adult and they're reading like what is you know more or less a kid's book and they're like wait a second like this is like boy you're so scared and then it just creates again that it feeds that reactivity which isn't it's not good in and of itself but it's also not good how they got there either yeah yeah and in the same respect i don't know i don't want to go back too far but the uh i'm always trying to find like okay what's the influencing factors here like is it their environmental things or other things that are like helping someone come to those conclusions and that that right leaning conspiratorial thing it is a concern for me and and i actually we talked earlier i want to talk about concepts of power and different things like that that you've written about um that may have overlap into politics but anyway before we get there the um that right-leaning conspiratorial thing it is a concern and it happened and and everyone's capable of sharing half-baked narratives like on the left and the right Mm -hmm. but the conspiratorial one i feel like so much of the like the 
the easier slippery slope to believing into that is the the dominant narrative or the cultural narrative has had like a left lean to it. If it was center, it was center left basically. And and oftentimes it's not even center. Um, and so and at the dominant cultural level, then not that there's no right, but anyway, um, because it feels like you have no authoritative voice in your life, like at the popular cultural level, all of a sudden it feels like, well, the whole world must be against me. And the whole world must be this like secret society yeah. cabal of someone. So, and it's just like, all of a sudden you start like going down these weird roads and you're like, wait a second, that's not cool. That's anti-human as well. That's not good at all. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because you know what, it, what it's led to is, is Christians dehumanizing their opponents. Mm -hmm. and, and you know, it just strikes me as there's, there's, there's few things more evil to the Christian than refusing to, to, to kind of listen to someone that's not them. I mean, it's, it, it really is abandoning them to hell and yeah. saying, I, I just don't care. And it's that, that is, I, as far as I can tell, that is becoming the, at least the, the, the far right conservative posture towards the world. And it's, the, the kind of let it burn mentality yeah. in order to kind of protect what they see as the, protect our own kind of, kind of idea. Like we need to protect what's ours, man. It, it's, it's one of those weird instances where, you know, it, it, it's how Jerusalem becomes Babylon in scripture. It's the same impulse. Yeah. And it's, it's that impulse that, unbeknownst to them, you know, I, it just makes me think of Jesus, you know, when he walks up to the fig tree and sees it's not bearing fruit and that, that being an image of the temple he's going into and to destroy it <laughs> mm -hmm. because it is abandoned the way of God. And in many ways, I think there are, there are churches in America who, that are profoundly conservative, theologically, biblically, and I'm a profoundly conservative biblical Christian um, but because of these postures, they have just abandoned utterly the way of Jesus. And they have embraced almost wholesale the demonic um, yeah. approach to, to, to life. And, and, that, and James 3 says it that way. And Jesus says it that way. It's why he calls Peter Satan to his face. It's, yeah. there, there is a demonic way. And um, when you look at that, that's such a good example, Kyle, because it's like when, when Christ does tell Peter, like, I mean, it's, it's, the same phrase that he used with Satan after the temptation in the wilderness. It's, like, it's like, be away from me, get behind me. And like, it gets translated, get behind me typically, but it's the same phrase that he uses in the desert. So essentially the temptation of Peter in that moment toward Christ is the same as, that's why he can say that it's not just hyperbole. He's essentially oh. saying like, you are manifesting something satanic yep. right now. And what's fascinating is you look at what he said, it sounds arguably innocent and arguably like understandable right a very like it's an impulse that like many of us would feel if like a leader was going down the path jesus was saying you know and it's like so yeah i think we should try and invigorate um not trying to demonize everybody like you said but invigorate like the seriousness of this kind of disassociative like i have the right theology therefore how i live act interact with other people it doesn't so much matter or it doesn't matter as much as long as they're not on my team and there's so much goofiness there um and not seeing um the rejection of a, of another imago day whether it's within the church or outside of the church um and that that has a dark spiritual impulse to it right that is that's that's cain and abel 101 you know like yeah totally anyway
Well, so I, I, we were going to talk about this a little later, but maybe we'll, we'll talk about, we're on a good track right now. Let's keep talking about um, this concept of so much of the problem with evangelicalism would be that it married up to institutional power, right? Um, yeah. and, and really hard, really hard, right? And so maybe we'll talk about this for a little bit and we can talk about what would some good antithesis be in practicing some contemplation and some different things and a proper spiritual formation. Because I think, I mean, maybe you have thoughts on this too. I think so much of our interaction with politics, it has liturgy and rhythms and habits to it that is spiritually formative. It's just mm-hmm. in that potter sense you're talking about it. It's a little bit more snake-like, you know, yeah, <laughs> a yeah. little bit more Babylon. Yeah, Jerusalem. Right. So anyway, let's, let's keep going yeah. with that. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the one of the things that I think has become the problem is, and you see this in almost every movement that has risen, every debate, every kind of divisive thing, the, the, there's there's been a problem where both sides actually are the same thing. And almost of every debate, they both assume the exact same thing, and they assume that toxic power, evil power, is the only true power. Mm-hmm. That is almost just across the board assumed to be true now in the church. That, and that's what's, it's, it's, they've accepted the world vision of power. And so my, my buddy, um, Jamin, who I write with, him and I, you know, several years ago now, many years ago now, we really felt called to write about this, but we didn't feel capable to. I mean, this is one of those things we're like, are we, I mean, we were at the time, young thirties, we're like, are we, are we the ones that should write a book about power, you know? Um, sometimes like the young thirties are like the ones who shouldn't be right. Cause they are manifesting that thing you're talking about of that. Like, well, that's how we felt. No hierarchy. No, you know, whatever. Yeah. That's exactly how we felt. And, and so one of the things that became clear to us was that we had to press into our weakness. Hmm. And so we knew we had to be the counter example. We had to be the bad example actually. And we needed to find good examples. And so we actually interviewed sages of power in our minds. Like who, who are the, these people? One of which J.I. Packer just passed away. Um, and uh, many of them have now passed away, sadly. But, um, you know, and as we did so, it was fascinating because it pushed us, you know, that book took us years to write because we would give these interviews and suddenly we'd be like, oh, we have to talk about this now. Oh, I really don't want to talk about that, you know, and, um, because what, what became clear for us is that in James 3, so James 3 gives two different ways. So you have the way from above, which is the way of Jesus, the way that comes down from above. Mm-hmm. And then you have the way from below, he says. And he says, this is the way of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The actual language you use is different. It's, it's a way that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And I think it's interesting that he interweaves those things. And so there's, there's, there's two ways of power. And the Bible loves giving us two ways. That's a standard biblical motif. You know, wisdom or folly, what are you going to choose, right? It's like, you just, it's just sharp, right? One or the other. World, kingdom, you know, above and below. And so the way, and even like we were referring to that passage in Mark 8 about, you know, get behind me, Satan. Right after Jesus says that, he says, you're setting your, your mind on the things of man. Yeah. So the things of man are the demonic. <laughs> Those are actually united and so James 3 actually gives us the logic of that. The world, the flesh, and the devil, there's a way when kind of left to the fallenness of ourselves and the world and the demonic, there is a view of power. And it's what we came to see as power and strength for control and domination, where the biblical view of power was power and weakness for the sake of love. Now, importantly, the way we see, because there's, there's, there's an increasing amount of discussion about this, but one of the things that people often get wrong is that Christians aren't for power. That's a totally missing Jesus point. No, we're meant to be powerful, 
but it's power that comes from without. And what is the passage that's so abundantly clear about this is 2 Corinthians um, 12, 9 and 10, where you just have Paul narrating all his suffering, his weakness. Jesus then tells Paul directly when Paul asked the thorn of the flesh to be removed. No, I'm not going to do that. My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul then says, I'll then boast in my weakness so that the power of God might tabernacle upon me is the technical phrase. A Marva Dawn, who we interviewed as a book, um, um, I think it's called Power, Weakness, and the Tabernacling of God. And, and she notes, like, why don't we translate it technically? Because tabernacle is kind of an important biblical phrase, you know, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that God's power comes from without. And this is why we, sh we shouldn't be afraid of our weakness. It's actually why we push into our weakness as Christians, which Paul says, I'm going to boast my weakness now. And by and large, as we looked at the church, as we looked at our upbringing, as we looked at the churches we knew, as we looked at what's gone on in the news, I mean, we wrote this book before Me Too, Church Too, um, before any of the Black Lives Matter movement started, before, I mean, before the Bill Hybels um, mm -hmm. controversy, who was my pastor going, my whole family became Christians of the ministry of Bill Hybels, before James McDonald lost his ministry, for those of you who know, kind of the Harvest Bible Chapel stuff, a church, I, again, I, I used to go to. Um, the litany of people I've seen who've lost their ministry entirely because of this. And it, and it, one of the things that's been interesting is, you know, we're kind of used to sex being the, the reason, right? And yet, again, evangelists often talk, you know, power, sex, um, money, right? Those three, money, sex, power, those three of this. And yet sex is really the only reason we care about. Like they're the only thing you're going to lose your ministry over. Mm -hmm. There's money you'll will kind of look badly upon you a little bit. We'll kind of judge you a little bit. <laughs> how much money. are you giving away? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, or, yeah. Or, or how big's your house? Yeah, yeah. Or yeah. how big's, you know, there's there's the, what kind of car do you drive, right? There's some of those things. But by and large, that's all we're going to do. We're just going to kind of look a little kind of snotty at you about it. Yeah. But then when it comes to power, we recognize it can corrupt, but we have no theology of its corrupting influence. Well, it's so hard because the metric... The metrics for, for sex and money are pretty clear. Like, do you have like a thick wallet, like a, a strong yeah. tax return or whatever, or yeah, yeah. not strong tax return? Or, yeah. <laughs> uh, or like, you know, did you do something unholy as far as sex goes? Like, there's clear metrics for that. But for power, like, I mean, yeah. I mean, there are some metrics for it, but there's, they're, well, they're a little bit more metaphysical and a little bit harder to understand. Um, but I don't think, I mean, that's kind of how we treat them, I should say. Yeah, yeah. I think there are some metrics, maybe, you know, like th that we should oh, well, be paying attention to. Yeah. What's fascinating about that James passage is that the, the James gives two characteristics. And he says, where you find these, you find every vice. And so right away, you're like, wow, okay, we're, we're already dealing with, you know, world flesh devil, like demonic. So this has got to be major stuff. The two characteristics he gives are selfish ambition and jealousy. Yeah. And in our interview with Marva Dawn, she says, um, you know, if you want to find selfish ambition and jealousy, just go to a pastor's conference. Hmm. And, you know, that is the sad reality is that, and, and what struck Jamin and I is, and that cuts a little closer to home than we're that comfortable with, right? I mean, selfish ambition and jealousy. And that if you find those, you find every, like these drive the demonic. And if that's true and going to your point, you know, one of the things that immediately struck us is, when you look at how churches hire someone, would they ever know if selfish ambition and jealousy drives this person? No, they'd have no clue. 
because they're never even looking for it because they don't think it's a real issue. And many times it's, it's some of its manifestations are looked at as because of the corporatism of so much of church within, especially the evangelical world, but the church mm-hmm. growth movement and all the rest, you've got like, they might even be looked at as like positive attributes, you know, some of these. Yeah. Totally. And that's exactly right. They will, they will. Um, the amount of times I've gone on um, and seen the church postings for jobs and it's so clear from the posting itself, like you are looking for a toxic leader. Like you're, because the only person that would ever apply to a job like this would have to be another narcissist. Yeah. And and yet that, and unsurprisingly, when you look over the last decade in evangelicalism, the litany of power abuse. And every time something happens, you know, we will get interviewed. You know, now every two months we get interviewed by when something one of these pops up, someone wants to interview. And I'm like, the question that's come to me now is. What's it going to take to have this conversation? But the church has shown a total uninterest in actually wrestling through this conversation. And it's, it's, it's amazing to me um, because it's, 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 it's absolutely um, a cancer at the heart of the church. It's warping the church from within. And, and it means tragically that, 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 we are doing a lot of sowing in the flesh with the fantasy that we'll be able to reap in the spirit. And, and that's, that's the real tragedy of the whole thing that one day, and maybe right now, you know, when, when I think we are really experiencing a, a kind of judging of the church, we're, we're, we're finally reaping what we've sown and, and it's showing itself to be wicked. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe um, to help give like a fully orbed, idea of what we're talking about because you're touching on some true things like there's a a conversation the church could or should be having and maybe has disinterest in and especially as i mean you're talking like leadership within but there's also like the leadership without of like as people participate in and play around with politics and different things and unhealthy ways you know and then even so there's all of that right i think that we can have a bigger conversation there too of just like the laities i think it's easy to point and look at like past like John MacArthur or whoever, you know, and, and I'm not saying that's what we're doing, but to dunk on John MacArthur is not like insanely hard in our circles, I don't think, because everyone knows him. They have some affinity, but they're also like, dude, he's just so hard on whatever, on X and like, that's silly. So anyway, right. that's easy to dunk on him in some respects, but then there's there's the, the reality of even wanting to do that, even wanting to dunk on John MacArthur is some goofy, backwards, demonic, like, exercising of power you know and it's it's a the desire to like not invert in the proper sense like you said like using the power of weakness from a power without that is godly that wants to will the good of another that's totally different from just wanting to subvert from just wanting to like tear down and or destroy and that's so much of this cultural narrative around power right now is um it's not um exercising power and influence to will the good of another it's removing your power to bring you to this other space you know and, and so it's it's different right yeah. and what's hard is we have this overlapping language um with it and so um yeah maybe i don't know is, is there a way to unpack like or do you have thoughts have you been thinking about like the popular um well, actually two things like one i want to talk about that like the popular definitions and ideas around power and all the rest mm-hmm. um and if there's difference between the churches and you were getting there a little bit, I think, but then also how do we avoid the pitfall that I'm seeing again, looking at the cultural story of what's going on and it's 
culture is fast. Everything's accelerated in, right now with technology and all the rest. There's no, uh, there's two things. There's no path to redemption, right? Which is scary. Um, it's pretty much just compliance control. Um, but the other thing is, um, and I shouldn't just, I don't mean, you know what I mean? It's just, it's, it's not good. It's dark. So then, but the other thing is how do we avoid um, going on unjustified witch hunts? Because this stuff can be tools for people to um, essentially not do their own introspection and work on stuff, you know, where they, they have a problem, like maybe a boss called them out on something and then they start saying, Oh, this is just an exercising of power. Like, and it's like, dude, you work at Home Depot and you're lazy, you know, like you got fired because you didn't show up or, you know, like there's all sorts of things that can go into it, but then we can take this rationale of what you're talking about and apply it as like, totally. you know what I mean? Yeah, right. Yeah. So that's just two big things, but maybe we'll take that one first and go back to the other one. How do we yeah. avoid the witch hunts and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things that we really put and one of the reasons why we, we believe we did feel called to write this book is because we wanted to model when you wrestle with power, the thing it should lead you to is to see it in yourself. Hmm. And so before you see it, you know, out there, you, you have to grapple with how evil power is warped your own vision of life. Um, we actually wrote when the whole Bill Hybels thing came to light. And again, you know, this was my pastor growing up. Um, we wrote something, we wrote a couple things on it, one for Christianity Today, one for Religious News Service. And part of what we are trying to do is model, like, before you come out with, I knew it, I knew that place was, you know, but it's like, you need to step back, like what these events should do, it should cause you to lament for the sake of the church. And it should cause you to turn inward and say, how have I been tempted? How has evil power kind of seduced me in various ways? And, you know, I think the I think that has to be our our approach. You know, one of the things that with power, one of the things that scares me most, because I I've heard students talk about this, where they'll they'll read my book and they'll say, yeah, you know, this is such a huge problem for those people that have power. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you have power. Like, the, in the kingdom, there's nothing like those people out there. Like, if you have five people sitting listening, you have power. Like, if you're a youth pastor with ten kids, that's power. Like. Power drives your your devotional life. Power drives what you think worship is. Power drives everything. And so, but there is now this cultural thing where we think, oh, there's some people with power and there's the rest of us. And that's false on every level, but particularly for a Christian, I would think, who who recognizes power isn't judged by how size the size of your audience. And yet we can buy into that. And 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 again, it it becomes the kind of speck in the other person's eye without ever addressing the log in my own. And so from from for my kind of money, I want to say this should always be first and foremost a mirror to really grapple with. You know, how do I and and in particular for the average lay person, why do you want a toxic leader? Like toxic leadership works in the church only because lay people want it. Sure. Right. I mean, it's not that like everyone wants holiness and this toxic leader ran. It's like, no, you hired him. (laughs) I I remember talking, I was talking to a group of elders about this and they were lamenting that, well, they were actually doubting my whole account made any sense. And, and they were, these were the same elders who hired a narcissist who ruined their church, who was an utter toxic leader. Then everyone knew it. And I'm like, and my response to them was simply, how did you not know what everyone knows? <laughs> this person's utterly toxic. Like, how do you not see this? Mm-hmm. And, and their response was telling, it's like, well, he was such a great preacher. And it's like, you see, this is, the, this is what Willard, when we, when we, when we um, interviewed Dallas Willard for the book, 
one of the things he said that I think is so true is, you know, up to 100 years ago and all the entire history of Christianity before, you could have been seen as a really faithful pastor and just not been a very good preacher. Sure, yeah. But today, we, we don't even fathom that because what we're looking for is what the Corinthians were looking for. We're looking for a rhetorician, mm. someone to wow us, someone that we look at and say, wow, I want to be on that person's team. And, and you know, we, we haven't read the Corinthian letters very well. <laughs> the church yeah they feel very contemporary yeah for sure yeah totally. no there's yep. so much in that that's such a good well the the leveling and or the great equalizing of this concept and idea of power it's not it's not an us alexander solzhenitsyn has that quote you know about the line dividing good and evil goes to the heart of every man it's not mm-hmm. some like group of people over there that we could set aside and be done with it's like no it's it's in you it's in me mm-hmm. and then his poetic close to that quote is so telling it's just like who's willing to cut out a piece of their own heart like nobody you know it's like i mean not from like a natural sense you need like that supernatural impulse in some respects because man it's yeah it's not something you'd want to do um and i love the way you're putting that though that uh also some of the contributing factors here are um there are things that are that are a little bit more publicly obvious to everyone looking but we're sort of doing this reward or a participational thing where we're all contributing to it in some respect. And that is another leveling thing, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. One really obvious cultural area I think this is, is, you know, as a systematic theologian, I, I think one of the things that's obvious is there are no questions more difficult than pretty much every conversation the average layperson assumes is inherently obvious. Mm. Gender, culture, politics. Race is difficult as well in a different way. But but politics in general, do you realize how hard that question is as a Christian? And yet, everyone seems to think it's inherently obvious. Well, of course, yes. we can do this, right? To not do that would be unfaithful. And it's like, I can't even begin to fathom how difficult it is. The, the amount of work you have to do to construct a Christian political theology is so wildly difficult. And yet it's like, we just, we just assume right or left, both sides assume it's clear and obvious what we're supposed to do. Yes. And right. nothing is farther from the truth. I mean, nothing is farther from that. I mean, that it's, it's a step, like I remember I lived in Britain for four years as when I was doing my PhD. And, and one of the things that was fascinating is I talked to evangelicals and they don't have a party. Like no one's aligned, like the church hasn't been co-opted like the church in America has right or left, mm-hmm. where, where right and left can, can kind of manipulate and abuse that for whatever ends they want. And, and so that requires now the Christian to really wrestle with, wow, what, what do I do as a citizen of the kingdom first and foremost, but secondarily as a citizen of, of this country that, that allows me to vote? Like, how do I faithfully do this? And, and of course, you know, that means it's driven by loving God and loving my neighbor as myself, right? Those are the governing mechanisms here, which is just untrue to our political scene. Yeah. And yet it none, none of it is obvious to them. And they recognize how difficult it is. And that requires then wrestling biblically, theologically. I mean, one of the things I think is so interesting when you get to the kind of election years is how, on the one hand, the Bible's utterly abused, but also just utterly ignored. Yes. By both sides. And that's most shocking by the right. That claims to be most conservative in terms of scripture. 
that their views are just utterly unmoored from scripture. Yeah, and that's that, right. That's when the, when like a, if a left, if a like high level politician on the left quotes scripture, people don't, they just kind of like, oh, it's just cherry picked. You're just trying to pander or whatever. But when a right leading person does it, it's, it's Look how biblical they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a, it's a code of, it, they're doing it for a reason, right? It's, yeah. it, it works in some respects. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like, I want to, part of what I would love to do is problematize these discussions. These are just hard. They're harder discussions yeah. than we admit. And that should lead us to real deep wrestling. Um, and, and it doesn't like I, there's very few places I see people doing honest wrestling in, in the political sphere where they haven't just presupposed the conclusions already. Yeah. And that's tragic. I mean, that, that basically tells Washington that the Christians are for sale. Mm -hmm. You choose the side and you can manipulate them at will. And, and we just allowed ourselves to be manipulated at will. Yeah. Yeah. That is, well, that's a pretty good read on what's going on. <laughs> yeah. 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 The, um, yeah, the, the, there's like the baked in assumptions with a lot of what you're talking about. Like you said, like the, the so obvious, like you're, that's interesting and it problematizing it. You're like clarifying the complexity basically when you're doing that. Like yeah. this is so hard. And it, it, it should, again, like, I think a biblical literacy, like an honest take on some biblical literacy, whether it's Corinthians, but even just looking at Jesus in the 12, you see the, the mosaic of worldviews that are represented within the 12 and, and then the political affiliations that are within the 12. It's like, no, I mean, we don't get it as much because if it said Republican and Democrat, like uh, Matthew, the Republican, let's say, or whatever it was, you know, and then so and so the Democrat, or like, you know, and uh, you'd be like, oh, well, this is interesting. But because we don't have a context for all of this, it's harder. But anyway, within the ideal, right, the 12 is like so much of an ideal. It's like this leadership that became the genesis of this mosaic of a church, the kingdom of God, all the things you're talking about. It, it uh it had within it like built intentions. And so in my mind, I was just talking with someone about this uh, yesterday that the, um, how would I put it? It's not just possible. The complexity is not just possible. It might even be the ideal, actually. It might be like how it ought to be, like figuring out how to humanize one another despite our unique and distinct differences. And maybe our strengths and weaknesses will be offsetting. And there's so much that can happen there. But when we play these games of being bought and sold, like you're talking about, um, we don't only not get to play the best game we actually divide right yeah well ironically yeah yeah i mean ironically i think what you just said there is a good articulation of the original vision of america and so if we were inclined to make america great again <laughs> that would lead us to recognizing that the plurality was on purpose yes and 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 the, yeah. the yeah. That, that should lead us into a certain humanization of each other that that neither side thus far has been willing to do. I mean, that's that's what's increasingly clear. I mean, I think what used to be on the crazy margins, the kind of like, we don't take these people seriously margins, that has now seeped in and choked out any kind of middle so that now it's, it's reasonableness is seen as folly. And like, that's what's so astonishing. Like to try to clarify and think clearly is seen as hedging <laughs> yeah yeah and that's what's amazing now like what what was the american ideal the right and the left equally have destroyed and have tried to reconstruct both using totalitarianism ironically yeah as the yeah, as yeah. the means by which they try to re restructure american life and that that 
the, the ironies there are so profoundly thick. And it's, it's, it's in, a many, in many ways, I think it's, it's only the church. And this was Willard's last kind of claim in his life when he, when he said it's only going to be the church where you get these cross cuts of culture with these different political views, these different educations, these different leanings, these different, you know, where we can learn and relearn what it means to actually have dialogue, where we can actually learn how to communicate with one another. And yet the church has done the same thing. They, they followed culture wholesale on this. And again, it's, it's sometimes very explicitly been about gaining power, gaining evil power in the world. Yeah. And there is like, I think, yeah, that hasn't, that's kind of a, a proper diagnosis, but I think Willard's take um, that the opportunity, maybe we call it the opportunity for the church here is massive. Uh, Larry uh, Hurtado, Hurtado, I'm forgetting his last name now, but anyway, he wrote, I think it was in the death of the gods, um, but he wrote that there's essentially within the early church, a big reason why it was so powerful. And uh, is it a uh, Larry Stark? Um, Stark is the last name. It wrote from a sociology sociology perspective the same thing. The church had this crazy thing happening where it was answering a lot of culture's fascinations and questions in a way that sort of brought the two together that just wasn't happening before. And so Mm -hmm. they had this profound care and concern for uh, the widow, orphan, the unborn, like kind of like the outsider and the poor, let's say. But, but, you know, the modern manifestations of that might be like abortion and and also like family care and foster care and all these things. but it also had like a profoundly clear like sexual ethic as well that was confronting culture. It was different and distinct totally. from culture. And um, some other things that might be more like right-leaning, let's say, in, in our popular modern political affiliations. But it also had a deep sense of community. And like this, uh, we would yeah. say like a priesthood of all believers idea. Like it is bringing everyone together into the same space or house or whatever. Um, and the opportunity there is so big right now. I'm in such a divided world. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how to put it. it. Like the smallest amount of virtue right now seems like it would be magnified, like with a megaphone, you know, because totally. it's just like everything yeah. else just feels so, I know everyone says that about every generation, but the, the level of division and all that, if we had just like a small example of saying like, this is what like a good life could look like as far as like your political and your praxis and all the rest. And mm-hmm. it would just be magnified right now. Cause the opposite is like you said, it's just stark divisions and all these things that are happening. Anyway. Yeah, totally. Um, totally. So I'm trying to interview you. I'll quit talking. What are some ways we can get out of this, man? Like, so not just that, like, but I, this sounds, um, well, speaking of that concept of privilege or a power, someone might say, well, that's a very privileged take, but I actually think if we got, if we took seriously our faith, not just in trying to answer questions in the direct fashion of like, I think we should do that. Like, how do we get out of this divided space? But we also just became more uh, fully or truly human in some ways and doing some of these spiritual formation things like that you talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, You wrote about, I mean, you wrote in general edited this book and there's like, like 20 plus people writing about this idea of contemplation. I think if, if people took an idea like contemplation seriously, it could, cash out in addressing some of these problems at least right so how do we how do we get into a more holistic view of not being so myopic and only addressing the problem and becoming just a better human and realizing that that can manifest and do some great things in the world does that make sense yeah 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 well you know part of what i think when we think about even humanization or becoming more human those that language um 
you know, we recognize that language. I mean, that's it, one of the reasons I like it is because it, it has a, a kind of cultural cachet. We recognize dehumanization. We've all yeah. been to the DMV. Um, <laughs> it seems yeah. to be designed to make you feel less like a human being. I, I always crash me up. The first thing they do is give you a number. It's like, we do have names. <laughs> numbers, numbers. I don't want to think of like you as a human. Um, but the, and of course, post um, World War II, we, we recognize that there's this, you know, that was the big shock of the world wars is that what we thought the enlightenment was going to lead us is to utopia. And what it led us to is eradicating a people group or trying to, right. It led us to these, like we have these deep kind of um, instincts as fallen people. And and it turns out we actually are fallen, right. That was the big shock Yeah, (laughs) that we remember like, wow, it's almost like we're predisposed to sin. Um, (laughs) And then you see that on a global scale. Right. And so part of, I think, what we, what we need to do is recognize that when we talk about humanization, that we, we actually don't have that capacity in ourselves. Like, I, I actually think one of the most subtle and devastating things going on that, that, again, Christians of a certain stripe seem to be accepting wholesale is I need to be true to myself. I mean, there's nothing more deviously false than that. It has this this pop psychology pop psychology ring to it. That's like, yeah, yeah, I know God made me, right? So you have this, you kind of can color it, Christian. God made me, so I need to be true to myself. And authenticity is baked in there, and that's a huge culture value plus biblical. Totally right. We, we we use those key terms as ways to kind of name the impulse, and yeah. Um, I mean, even the rise of like the enneagram and some of the things that like um, are are about again. We can, we can talk about those, those, those can have a meaningful role in various ways, but we have to remember that your life is hidden with Christ in God. That as a Christian, if you want to know who you are, you can't look internal to yourself primarily. You look external to yourself. When you do look internal to yourself, what you're primarily seeing there is the places that need Christ, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. Not the truth of yourself. The truth of yourself is external to yourself. That is the reality we have. That, that that to be human is to discover yourself in relation to Christ. It's like a tabernacle or something, you know. Like yeah, well, outside, that's, exactly, yeah, that's exactly right. So that's on a cultural level. You see that biblically with with what goes on at Sinai, then into the tabernacle, where now the whole community is organized around the tabernacle, um, and that the reason why God doesn't want two different seeds sown in the same field is because that would be a sign of holiness where holiness wasn't meant to be, right? Two yeah. fabrics sewn together in the tabernacle are fine, um, precisely because that's where holiness was, right? So the, the whole culture organized around the presence of God, that now in the New Testament becomes true about the life of the Christian life of the community of faith. And the recognition of Christ is the center. And we now discover ourselves in orbit around him, which makes the temptation constantly finding the center in ourselves and using God in Christ to further that agenda. That sadly is almost ubiquitous. Now you just see this. I mean, the amount of books on the Christian life just presuppose you need to be true to yourself because you're authentic you and you know it's yeah. not they don't have to even argue it because like it's it's so shared in culture right now. And and yeah, it's you don't even have to argue for it. It's assumed in a lot of ways. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's amazing how many, even in really concerned, coming from really concerned, even fundamentalist backgrounds, how many of my students come in with that presupposition popping around in their heads? I mean, it looks differently in their church backgrounds, but, but it's still there. And so, but once we kind of recognize who I am is defined by something external to me, one of the things that provides is it provides the pathway to reconciliation. 
And, and once we embed that with a proper Christian notion of power and therefore flourishing as, as not, not finding strength in yourself, but embracing your weakness for the sake of love, then things like service begin to make more sense. Servant leadership, which is a, which is a tossed around phrase that begins to make sense. Suddenly loving our neighbor as ourselves begins to make sense. And so I think the problem is we have all these ideas, loving our neighbor, service, servant leadership, all these things. The problem is they're built on a faulty foundation because they're built on a foundation that's primarily secular, a view of power that's secular, a view of the self that's secular. And so when it when we drive them through, they end up leading into a kind of us versus them kind of context. I mean, there's a reason why um, in the 70s, when you have the modern church growth movement, it explicitly was built on segregation. Mm-hmm. They said that. They explicitly said, well, the only way to grow something big is if everyone looks alike and makes the same amount of money. Yeah. And so let's target people that look alike and that make the same amount of money. And, you know, that there, there's, there's kingdom reasons why we never would think that's good. Now, is it is it good according to cultural power? Yes. You want to be powerful culturally. That makes all the sense in the world. Yeah, if your goal is to grow a big church quickly, that is the best way to do it, honestly. Like to, yeah, to create totally. um, monolithic, as much as you can, like segregated, same same thinking, same looking groups of people. And that's and not if, hard to do. It's not hard it's to do that. Hard to like, do. That's right. Well, and if power is in strength, that's exactly the way you do it. But if power is in weakness for the sake of love, and so this is what I want to reimagine the economy of the kingdom through the lens of power. And if that's the case, one, the kingdom now makes sense. (laughs) All the crazy things Jesus says make sense. He goes, oh, maybe that's true. Maybe maybe if you try to save your life, you really will lose it. Like suddenly it becomes clear that Jesus wasn't just kind of saying funny, goofy things for, for the sake of a shock or something or effect. He actually thought the world worked this way. Which means when we when we kind of contemplate, part of what that means is we are we are contemplating the kingdom and what it might mean to live as if it were true. This is what Willard called the kingdom of God is realism. Um, Willard loved this, and I think he was exactly right about this. That we actually have to begin thinking about Scripture as if it's actually true. And what's amazing is, no matter how conservative you are, you're predisposed not to do that. You're predisposed to think that the first will be last and the last will be first is a nice phrase, but doesn't bear out in reality. Because I, I just don't see it being lived. That's not how they preach. That's not how they function. Like, it's, it's we have to begin thinking that this actually is reality. And so what does it mean for me to kind of set my mind on things above, as Paul says, is set my mind on these realities to help me see the world as it actually is. Yeah. And I think the, one of the hardest places is going to be power. Because by and large, I look at the world, the first aren't last and the last aren't first. The people yeah, are trying to say the right perfect thing. through weakness. Yeah, yeah, that's, for sure. Yeah, that's yeah. not true. You know, that's, like, yeah. that's not how the world works. And so I have to step back and say, no, it is, though. By faith, I know it is. Mm-hmm. It's not by sight, right? And there's a reason why faith and sight are opposed to one another. To live by faith is to see the world and say, that's not how the world actually works. Yeah. No, that's such a good way of putting it, Duke. Oh, man, I've just been thinking about this lately. The the that is even a post enlightenment, like thinking of like faith and then like sight and reason, you know, and all the rest, like there are these disassociated things. It's like, no, it's almost like in the idea of like the true biblical phrase of apocalypse, it's like pulling back the veil to see the world as it really is, or in this spiritual sense, right? Like seeing it. So it's still seeing, 
It's just seeing it clearly, like seeing it for what it actually is. Yeah, yeah. what's interesting in Scripture is faith is opposed to sight for a physical sight, Hmm. but then it's talked about in sight terms. So so Paul says we we walk by faith, not by sight, but then he says, you know, we see through a mirror dimly when he's talking about faith. It's like, so it's still kind of seeing, but it's now dim, right? Because now we have to see the world through the grid of, of, of Scripture and actually say, oh, no, that actually is power. And so actually giving myself to these things is powerful. And that, I think that's one of the hardest things is because we, we're such an evaluative culture. Like we love our statistics. We love to evaluate. We love to weigh. We love to, you know, is this successful? Is this doing well? Is this, you know, and we can quickly find out how many followers we have. We can quickly find out how successful that campaign was, how, you know, and to say that none of those things actually give us success biblically because, precisely because we're not going to see it fit with physical eyes. We're going to see it with the eyes of faith, which is the clearer vision in, in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And so now it's how do I judge what its success is? Well, Jesus is going to tell us actually how to judge what success is. And Paul's going to tell us. And the problem is Paul's going to say things like, oh, yeah, okay. So, so how do we now boast in calamities, suffering, persecutions, and weakness? Yeah. And I'm going, really? Because I, I, I don't, you know, I, I get persecution. I, I could get boasting in that because then that's like a, a an agent is acting again. Like calamities, like random boasting in calamities, Paul? Like, but no, that that is not, and it's because he says that in 2 Corinthians 12, 10, right after he says, because the power of God tabernacles upon me in my weakness. Mm-hmm. And now my weakness is the sphere by which I embrace power. And again, if that's true, we need to start looking around and saying, do our churches work that way? Does our politics work that way? Does our, you know, does our money work that way? You know, it's, it's, that's, that's the, that's the life of faith that, that the Bible clearly calls us to. I don't even know anyone that doubts that actually. Like I've never seen anyone that argues against that point. Mm-hmm. And yet the difficulty is we don't think that way. That's not how our minds work. That's not how our culture works. That's not how our politics work. That's not how we think about money. That's not how we think about wise investing. That's not what we think. I mean, the difficulty is we've 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 kind of taken a Christian glaze and kind of tried to glaze American culture. And again, both right and left do this, where they just kind of glaze a cultural movement and say, yeah, yeah, we do this thing too. And neither of them are by faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's where we really need to begin a new vision of what does it mean to actually walk by faith, trusting that, that Jesus and scripture actually were telling the truth about these things. Yeah. You talk to people, I mean, money would be a good example. And politics is the easy one because it's so culturally loud right now. It's an election year, but it's like you talk to people and they'll, and they might, you know, you really push, like, we were talking about this actually from our church perspective. We're, I'd say like we're pretty like, I don't mean divided against oneself, but a a differentiated church and as far as like political allegiances and those things go. But I think if you push most people, which makes it on the one hand, like easy to talk to an individual where you say like, whoa, you're leaning in some weird ways here or or there. But when you try to talk from the pulpit, all of a sudden it's like, gosh, how do I talk to all these different people at the same time? You know, it's so hard. And so you start getting into values, which is, you know, and some of the things you're talking about. But anyway, um, uh, I think politics is a, a good way to to frame that and talk about it. Um, and this is 
might feel random, but I think it goes with what you were saying. Um, and he was talking about nonviolence, but Preston Sprinkle had this quote that like stuck with me so well. And he just said, I'm not about faithful or I'm not about effectiveness when it comes to nonviolence. I'm about faithfulness. So like, and it almost it immediately people are like, oh, well, that makes sense. It chills all of the arguments about like, well, what about the, the, the guy like doing something bad in public or whatever, you know, he's got a gun, you know, like, and what if you had a gun, you could help fix it. Maybe, you know, maybe you cause more problems, but there's, you don't even have to engage in that philosophical question because it's like, no, I'm just going to be about effectiveness or excuse me, faithfulness. I mixed it up. Totally. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and the same thing goes with voting, right? It's like people do the lesser two evils plugging their nose thing. And it's like, yeah, that's yeah. just feeding the beast, so to speak. Anyway, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Or I would say in our cultural moment now, it's not even that. Like I see, and I think uh, for evangelicals, I think a lot of it is the lesser of two evils, but there's an increasing camp that actually refuses to name evil that is explicitly on the surface yeah and so instead of saying this person's evil mm -hmm. but they're the lesser of two evils they now don't even allow themselves to recognize the evil there and they just deny it that that is what's so scary like that's where babylon really has overtaken the american mm -hmm. conscience where, where we can no longer name evil as evil and actually in many ways you know one of the the, the kind of differences in the book of revelation between those that follow the beast and those that follow the lamb is the ability to recognize and name evil right and the second we lose that ability i, I think we begin to show who our master is and of course jesus wasn't hesitant Jesus never hesitated to say you are of your father the devil to the pharisee the conservative biblicist of their day mind you yeah. and it was precisely because they they showed an utter inability to name the truth at times in key ways and um, and yet, you know, we don't. That's not a mirror we we look in right now, unfortunately. And it's one that we increasingly, I think, need to recognize. But one of the things that's so we we dealt with in Dragon the Lamb book, we we actually talk about nonviolence. And and one of the things that struck me, particularly about MLK, who was so brilliant on that, you know, his. Um, and, and what's so funny about his view of nonviolence has never been followed, right? He's never actually been followed in this because, you know, he... Well, it's so distinctly Christian. So if you're a more, I don't know if it's what you mean, but if you're more of a secular civil rights activist, totally. you, ha you have to divorce the Jesus. And if you divorce the Jesus, it's like, exactly. well, you lose the nonviolence because it's not effective. Anyway, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, for, for MLK, you know, he said that you, you can't resist nonviolently if you hate the person in your heart. Yeah. And that is the that is that Jesus claim, right? That profoundly love my neighbor as myself. And but what's funny about his the other part that hasn't been recognized, I don't think, by a lot. I mean, some have in the civil rights movement because they've experienced it. Is that the reason you resist nonviolently is for violence? Yes. You're 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 tr because you recognize that evil likes to stay in the shadows, mm -hmm. and you resist nonviolently to wake it up. And he he very well knew that his action was prodding the dragon. And it, he was going to bear the bulk of that. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think the church in America, the evangelical, and particularly the white evangelical church in America, that is used to having a kind of cultural power. I mean, the 80s and 90s promised, you know, the, the Billy Graham era promised us cultural power. Yeah. And we accepted it wholesale and we took it as a birthright. Um, and the problem now is, I think we, I think people are struggling to come to grips with that's not our call. Our call is to bear witness to Jesus. And what that will mean is to awaken the dragon against us. 
Right. Because to poke the dragon now it would be to like poke ourselves, basically, because we're marrying up and to poke our own institutions that we're marrying up to. Yeah, they, uh, the it profound... will lead us. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I'll say it will lead us to, to what we fear the most, which is losing cultural power. And yeah. that, that's the, 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 the certain, and I don't think my generation is doing this book, but certainly the generation above me, like they still are holding on to this, this fantasy that we can kind of Christianize America without it secularizing us. Like that was always the fantasy. And, yes. and unfortunately what happened is the people that assume it wasn't is a Christian nation, the people that have become so utterly secularized by it. And the people whose values are are just sub-Christian, and yet ironically they uphold them at decisively as Christian virtue, and, and it's it's that sort of you know. Th- and it, but that's the fantasy with the fantasy with power is always the same. It's I can sow in the flesh, or I can sow in the demonic and reap in the spirit. And right now, that's what we're doing. We're, we're, we're thinking, no, we can we can sow in the flesh, we can sow evil, but we can still reap good. Yeah. And all along, we're bearing witness to to the very powers that crucified our Lord rather than the crucified Lord. Mm-hmm. That's the great tragedy, I think. Yeah, it is. And let's, um, well, maybe we can land the plane here. Cause I think part of the way we start exposing not only the dragon without, but the dragon within and, and our allegiances to the dragon, so to speak, to keep with your language there and try and tap in more into our union with Christ and the, with the lamb. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it isn't just, um, some metaphysical or future reality. It's a participational now thing that, you know, um, is, yeah, like, yeah. Anyway, it has a now reality to it, right? Um, to live a- into our union with Christ. Um, I think a way we can get to that is, um, and again, like, I guess it gets to what you said before. You start seeing the disassociation that you have inside of yourself when you tap into this power that's outside of you and this reality that's outside of you that is good. So how can we, I know you've been writing and thinking about prayer and, and contemplation, obviously, a lot lately. How can we get um, to this place where we start seeing the dragon inside of ourselves? So that, and, and I think part of the win there is you can actually start poking the dragon outside a little bit better, right? And that's so much of what, MLK sure. wasn't a perfect man, but he's a hero of mine. He did that with, yeah, all, all the movement yeah. that he was up to, obviously. Yeah, well, you know, one of the, one of the things that has really altered my understanding of prayer over the years. Um, and John Coe, actually, the one that explained this to me first, helped me see this first. And so we, we, we have a book coming out in February called Where Prayer Becomes Real. And it's um, and in many ways, it's, it's, it's developing this insight, which is prayer is not a place to be good. It's a place to be honest. Hmm. And the problem that with prayer for most people is that prayer becomes a performance. It's a performative reality where we're trying to convince God that we're worthy, that we're repentant, that we're whatever else. Um, there's, there's a great writer. Oh, I'm blanking on his name right now. It's going to come to me in three hours from now and I'll, I'll get drive nuts. But there's a writer who, who talks about how, you know, in, in no, um, no child kind of gets distracted talking to their parents about what they want for Christmas. Just like no one has a problem with mind wandering when they're praying to God as the Titan- on the Titanic as it's sinking. Mm-hmm. Because they're praying for what they deep- most deeply desire. Or those kids are talking to parents about what they most deeply desire. So the problem with prayer is most of us pray the way we think we ought to. And we never get around to talking to God about the truth of what we desire. 
And I think what we need to do is recognize when I see sin in myself, the, the, our innate instinct is to leave the presence of God, fix it so that we can come back. And that's the fall, right? That is the garden. That's it's the, the pattern. It's garden. the perfect pattern. Yeah, yeah, right. And, and what we need to do is we need to say, God, I am so angry. God, look at how greedy I am. I need you, right? Like the movement is always a Godward movement. And, and I think one of the most helpful passages about this is 1 John, in 1 John 3, 19 and 20, um, John says, when you are before him, so you're in the presence of God and your heart condemns you. I was like, that's, which in and of itself, most of my students, I bring this up too, because they've never imagined a scenario where their heart would condemn them in God's presence. I said, yeah. well, John assumes that's true of the Christian. Like, let's just stop there for a second. Like, why is your heart condemning? There's all sorts of, this is what we talk about spirit formation. Like, what, what's actually happening? There? Like, why does he assume this? Yeah. It, and so what do you do? Well, your heart condemns you. Most of us think God's condemning you. Like, we imagine our mind, because that's a conscience probably. Your conscience is paying, and that's God's condemning me. John says, God is greater than your heart, and he knows everything. Mm-hmm. He pushes you to God, not to your own resource. He doesn't say, get your active. You better fix your life. He says, go to God. If we started going to God with God, I, I hear what Jesus says about the first will be last and the last will be first. I don't believe it. I don't live my life that way. I believe, help me in my unbelief, but look at my unbelief. Like that has to be our movement. The problem now I think we have is we, we feel guilty. We feel shame when we read those scriptures. We try hard. And what happens is we, we learn how to affirm them without ever believing them. Yeah. And they never shape our lives. We never actually live as if they're true. The first move there is honesty, and it's honesty with God that, that's necessary. And, and we need to actually believe that, that God is enough and that God can contain our, our sinfulness and, and, and what he doesn't want for us is a new kind of law where we clean ourselves up so that we can be in his presence. I mean, that's, that's the great irony about Jesus, right? Jesus is the one person who, when a leper touches him, he doesn't get unclean, but cleanliness flows from Jesus to the leper. Yeah. That's where we go now in our uncleanness and our sin. We go to the one that can actually deal with these. It's why the author of Hebrews says the only thing that can deal with an unclean conscience is the blood of Jesus. Um, we go to the one who can clean. And so it's, it's that movement in prayer, which is, a, for I think, for most of us, much more than we admit, that will require a total relearning of what prayer is and, and, and how we actually pray and how we navigate what the weird stuff that goes on in prayer when we sin, when our mind wanders. All of that stuff needs to be kind of recapitulated around the notion that God is the one that we bring these things to, not ourselves. Yeah, that is... Well, that is very well put, Kyle. Yeah, that is very well put. Yeah, and there's, um, I don't know, there's so much in that too. Um, obviously, um, well, I, I, I want to say something before I ask you to like, how can people stay connected to these ideas and keep learning about this? Because this is so helpful. And here's the deal of this, like we talked about this renaissance, but the popular level version of this renaissance of spiritual formation has been disciplines. And some of that's for good reason, because, you know, uh, in a, in a world where we have so much about COVID's kind of messing this up a little bit, but we've had the abundance of opportunity. Like the world really was open to us through digital media. Like I can talk with you like this and record it. Like there's so many opportunities open. 
people are essentially doing everything and doing nothing at the same time, right? Because there's no like rhythm and discipline and habit to their life. Um, totally. If you ask someone like, what are you doing next week? It wasn't in their calendar, you know, you know, yeah. so anyway. Um, so there's some wins there. There's something that's like good for people there, but that's just not all of it because you're getting into this reality of, uh, yeah, again, awakening and helping people be more human. So, um, and it comes from that true understanding of yourself. Anyway, I would love for people to get more connected to this stuff. Um, how, how could or should they do it? Are there books that you would recommend outside of your own? But also what, I want to hear like what you've been writing on this topic as well. And how can people follow up on this? Yeah, yeah. Well, on a more, I mean, what's hard on a more popular level, like it's, I mean, I agree with you that there, there's actually a lot of good books out there dealing with spiritual practices of various kinds. I, I do worry that because there's not a lot of theologizing going on about what are these even for? Yes. That the problem is most people take them and they actually just become a grand self-help project. Yep. Um, and in and, that same way you're talking about, they can become performative, you know, in the same way. Totally. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's how most people see them. How was that? Did it work? Did it go well? Did it, you know, there's all these questions that actually, and we can ask some of those questions, but we have to ask them in a distinctively kind of Christian way. And, and most of us aren't trained that way. And so the worry is they just become another tool the flesh uses to construct itself in its own power. Right. So mm -hmm. that, that's, that's really the danger, particularly the culture. I mean, we're such, we have such a self-help culture. Um, most people not only see spiritual disciplines exactly like they see the gym um, and every January 1st, they come up with a new plan and the gym does the same thing. But even their success at them mimics how they do at the gym. Some are quite good at it. Some are just, they start up, they get a membership two weeks later. They've, you know, that, that, yeah. they look at their lives and that's exactly what they hear a sermon says you should do this. They do it for two weeks and it stops or whatever. And so, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot that, that needs to be taught. So there's a lot of good books that actually talk about the nuts and bolts of them. Um, one of the things I've tried to do, so in the book I mentioned earlier, Form for the Glory of God, I tried to give what was, and I, it's on Edwards, but Edwards actually wasn't that distinct on this stuff. Um, it really tries to give an early evangelical vision of spiritual formation. Mm -hmm. And it part of it does, because I talk a whole lot about spiritual practices, but it tries to couch them in the, in the context of grace. Like what, what is, what, and cause we never, we didn't talk about spiritual disciplines before we talked about means of grace yeah. and that, that shifts what these do a little bit. So that, that's some of my own works tried to do that. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of what I've seen lately is just, there's a lot of really academic stuff going on. So I think what's happening now in the academy is there was in the, in the late 20th century, early 21st century, there was this movement to redevelop virtue ethics. And the problem is the virtue ethics that got kind of recovered were Aristotelian into Thomas, but Thomas wasn't fully read. And so Thomas makes a really sharp distinction that's fundamental for the West. And it's a distinction between acquired virtue and infused virtue. Mm -hmm. Infused virtue is virtue by grace alone. Thomas and the Catholics, if they know what they're talking about, do not believe that you can do things to make your life better as a Christian. They do not believe you can somehow just generate holiness. It's always by grace alone. Thomas is very clear about that. The problem is that wasn't developed. And so a lot of the spiritual formation movement was influenced by that. So spiritual practices now become the same thing as just developing habits that form you. Whereas the tradition doesn't believe that actually, even though 
they might have habits to develop, but the habits were not virtue oriented. They were God oriented. So they were means by which we seek and share and, and embrace God and contemplate God. And it's actually in the relationship we have with God that, that we are now formed. And unfortunately, that turn, the recognition of the role infused virtue has to play in Thomas, that in the last 20 years has really kind of jump-started another strand of this tradition, but it's all stayed in the academy. There's virtually no one discussing it on the, on the popular level. Um, and so a lot of times what happened, it needs to get worked out. The details need to get worked out, and then it'll get <laughs> right on the popular level. Yeah. And so that, that's been unfortunate. I mean, I think, um, I, you know, it's something I want to do and will continue to do. Um, but a lot of those things need still working out in their details in, in the academic kind of vein. Um, I've written, a, you know, I, I, part of how I understand my kind of calling as a theologian is I write a popular book and then an academic book and I kind of go back and forth. And so I have a series of popular books on a spirit formation, um, usually co-written with my best friend who's a pastor, Jamin Goggin. And so like we wrote a book called Beloved Dust, which is a little bit of like spiritual formation 101, um, kind of biblical spirituality would be another way to look at that book. And actually the sequel to that book is the Dragon Land book on power. So in our mind, those are very intimately connected because part of what the Beloved Dust book is meant to do is to re-embrace the truth that you're a creature. And so you're, the problem is you're, you, you, the fall keeps on happening for you. You keep trying to be like God. And so you need to begin, and you know, our technology is often a God-like kind of thing where we try to reject our createdness. Mm -hmm. um, most, most people, most moderns don't embrace sleep. They don't embrace the rhythm of sleep that is built into being a creature as a gift. Um, so we try to reject our createdness by our rejection of sleep. Um, there's, so there's all sorts of things like that that we, that we try to kind of, what does it mean to embrace the truth that you are dust <laughs> and that, that, that God has created you as beloved dust. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of those sorts of things that I'm storing, you know, the fact that John and I did this book on prayer. So a lot of what I'm trying to do is trying to take the things that have gone on in the academy um, and our institute for 20 years, we've tried to wrestle through this and try to disseminate that down in a way that hasn't happened all that much. Mm -hmm. um, Willard tried to do this. Willard and I um, would be very similar in one ways, but we communicate very differently. You know what I find with Dallas, who I loved? Um, I'm more reformed. He's more Wesleyan. But Dallas kind of assumed people were doing the theology. And so yeah, he didn't right. talk about it. When I talked to him one-on-one, -on -one, he could quote Wesley off the top of his head. He would talk about all these distinctions that never made it in his writing. So at times when I read him, it feels like more of that, just develop habits and you'll grow. Every now and again, he'll have these lines that say, well, that doesn't work or whatever. And if you knew him, you knew, oh, that's based on the theology he's assuming. But he was always worried about the person who thought they could grow by just showing up to church on Sunday morning. And so he's kind of prodding that person. The problem is that person's not reading his books. The person that's reading his books, the, the person that's more predisposed to self-help. already recognition. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And so he, I, I think he's been really misunderstood, unfortunately. I think he hasn't been fully kind of absorbed, like in terms of the wholeness of what he's saying. Um, and it's because I think he wasn't writing with that theological framing because he thought, well, they're getting that. They're just not getting the practice kind of more. And I think that's, I, I think, unfortunately, the audience that he inherited isn't the audience he assumed. And so that, that, that yeah. gets really lost in translation. If he would have had that actual audience, maybe the assumed one, it would have been, like you said, 
well, let's just say more clearly understood. Know, yeah, yeah, well, he, like, yeah. he would at least get them moving and recognizing, wow, I can't just passively grow as a Christian. Then later on, he's assuming someone would help shepherd them through the difficulties now. Because, you know, once you get so, you know, the problem that no one talks about is if you just give someone a handbook on spiritual discipline and they start practicing them, that's going to go bad. Yeah. They're going to go, why is my heart condemning me in the presence of God? <laughs> you know, all these problems, you know, because if you haven't given them, oh yeah, this is going to push you into your weakness. Like, you don't, you don't fast to get good at the Christian life. You fast to realize how deeply angry you are. <laughs> well, if someone assumes I fast to get better, they're going to go, this is, this is bad. This is wrong. Things aren't working well. And so they need someone shepherding them. Um, it's why in our program, actually, we don't talk about spiritual disciplines until a year and a half into the program. Because we actually want a map for you, like, what does life with God actually look like in a Protestant vein? Because, you know, as an evangelical, we want to, like, what is grace? What are some of these presuppositions in the scripture about the desert? Like, why is Christian liturgy formed by the Exodus wholesale? Why, why every Sunday are we reenacting the Exodus? As, you know, we come through the water of our baptism to sing as we're journeying to the Lord, as we take the manna from the desert, as we go to the mountain to hear the word of the Lord. Like, each element, like, why? Well, Stephen tells us that, that those people t- turned back to Egypt in their hearts, just as we do. And so there's this reframing in the liturgy of how do I set my, again, how do I contemplate the kingdom? Well, if I think these things are making me better, <laughs> and all they're doing is being mirrors to see how much I long for Egypt, well, I'm either going to not do them, or I'm going to buy into the lie that if I do them well enough, I can form myself. And now it's just going to become this kind of, again, self-help project. And so that, that yeah, really is my worry that, that I see going on right now. It looks a lot, when I look out there, I see a lot of Aristotle. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. don't see a lot of, of, of a really Christian reimagining in grace what this entails. Wow. That is, that, that, that's powerful. I, I want to wrap up there. That's, that's really powerful stuff. Yeah, that, that pining back and long, it's just a perspective shift of what you're arguing for. It's not like, I'm not saying it's not profound. It is. It's, but it's so subtle and simple and without being simplistic. You just shift your perspective. And um, all of a sudden, if you, you still can do spiritual practices, let's call them, or these means of grace, but you understand them is that they're going to be exposing the real you in these avenues of connection with God, right? They're going to be yeah. exposing the real you. And uh, that's good. It sucks in some ways. It's not comfortable. It's not great. You know, it's, it's all those things you're talking about earlier, but when you go into it with that perspective in mind, that expectation, let's say, in mind, it's not a drudge anymore, the worst thing in the world. It's the best thing in the world, right? Yeah. To become yeah, more like Christ. Christ. Totally. Yeah. Well, okay. Um, I think that's great. I don't know. Actually, do you do like uh, social much? Or are you like on Twitter? Should people follow you in I those am ways? On Twitter. Yeah, yeah. I'm terrible at it, but I'm on Twitter. I'm just Kyle oh, Stoll. Yeah. Um, no, so Twitter, I guess, yeah, yeah. I'm not gonna I just use these random kind of things, but yeah, yeah, totally. No, Twitter. Well, I don't want to just. Like, I don't want to just tell people like you have to enroll in seminary to hear from me. So you know. Yeah. No, to, no, and you know this has been a that actually that right there has been a real weight on us. So we're actually in the middle of developing a, a church-based program. Good. That's expensive. That's aimed at Thank God. Because for too long, this stuff has been kind of just quarantined into the church or into the seminary which is great you know hopefully a generation of pastors will come out with it on their radar but it also needs to be in the lives of of people in the church so we actually just got a grant to develop that whole program um, by actually a donor a donor really just said we need this in the church how how can we do it so 
that is, you know, as we move forward, there, there's going to be a lot of stuff coming out in the next couple of years on, on that. And so I'm really excited about that. I'm really glad to hear that because, yeah, so much of our current, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of generative work that comes out of the academy, but the ability, so, you know, I, I'm in and gone through plenty of seminary training and all the rest, but then you get like a job at a church or you're, you're pastoring, let's say, and, you know, you're, you're doing hospital visits, so many things that aren't uh, well informed by the seminary often, you know, um, trying to balance a budget or whatever, you know, it's just like, there's so many things that are just not like well informed there. And uh, so there's that piece on the one hand, um, but that's sort of a separate frustration maybe. What's so hard is that you lose like the time, space, ability that you have in this academic setting where that's almost all that it is. It's just, total. and so like the ability to go back or tap into those things, it feels like I don't have time to like distill all of that like exclusive space that I had back down here. I've got real things to do, quote unquote, you know? Totally. Yeah, yeah. There's always more pressing things to do that vie for your attention that, and it's not the kind of thing you could have slipped into a half an hour here, half an hour there. It's yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for this. Uh, I encourage people to follow you on Twitter, even though you're not good at it. Um, <laughs> to, I mean, maybe enroll in some kind of seminar, but if they follow you on Twitter, they'll probably hear about that um, school you're coming up with. That's great. I'd love yeah, to hear yeah. more about that when it drops. And uh, honestly, dude, your, your books are great. I, I like this one. I would plug this one for people that's embracing contemplation. It has a little bit more of a, it's more academic, right? Um, with the people that are contributing to it. But uh, I had read your form for the glory of God as well. And what's so cool about it, it's, it's a thin book, technically speaking, but it's, it's, you wrote it well. I don't know. You didn't co-author that, right? That was just you. Oh no, that was just me. Yeah. Yeah. And it's written well. Um, it's thin, so it's readable in that sense, but it's, it's deep too. So. Oh, yeah. thanks so much, anyway, brother. Encourage people to read that. Yeah. Thanks. I appreciate it. This was awesome. Thank yeah. you so much. All right. Well, have a good day. Hey, you too, brother.